the optimal life. Yeah, so CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapist. What exactly is, how do you define CBT? Uh, so CBT is a little bit different from psychodynamic therapy. Uh, psychodynamic therapy is what people usually think of when I think of traditional talk therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy is a little bit more directive. It's more active. There's experiential exercises. There's skills that you learn. The main distinction between psychodynamic therapy or psychoanalytic therapy and uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is that psychodynamic therapists help people gain insight into their unconscious. And they believe that that insight will help lead to change. Uh, me being a behavioral therapist, I don't really believe that insight alone is enough to lead to behavioral change. Uh, I think we've all had the experience of knowing that we're doing something that's not workable uh, or not helpful for us or like a bad habit that we have and it's very difficult for us to change even when we have a lot of insight as to the damage that it causes. So cognitive behavioral therapists, we work on helping people notice the barriers to doing different behaviors. So we help you identify your values, what you want to be about. Uh, teach you certain skills so that you're able to identify new behaviors that you want to engage in. And then when we clarify those, we work with the barriers. If there's certain thoughts that come up or feelings or sensations that act as barriers to new behaviors, we do experiential exercises and interventions to work on those. So for example, let's imagine that... Um, Let's imagine that I have a difficulty saying no and I'm a people pleaser. And therefore, when somebody asks me to do something I don't want to do, uh, when I feel guilty and I have the thought that I'm selfish, I then don't say no. Then I would work with someone to notice the thoughts and will do certain exercises like mindfulness and diffusion and making distance from those thoughts and relating to the mind differently so that your core beliefs are no longer influencing those behaviors as strongly. And then we work with certain emotions like guilt and we do exposure and we self-compassion exercises, acceptance-based exercises to help people make more space for difficult emotions, uh, to notice the sensations in their bodies. Um, and the more that you're making friends with difficult emotions and making space from uh, thoughts, then you have more freedom and flexibility to take the actions that you want to take. So is that what one of the major problems is for people that are stuck in these loops that are always doing the same thing over and over again and they're trying to figure out why am I always fighting myself here? Is is the main reason because they have this this mental barrier, as you put it, to not be able to look at something from a different lens and then they're always stuck in that routine? Uh, yes, I would say that uh, everything comes back to a core belief. So I work with people's core beliefs and if you go to my website bayareacbtcenter.com there's a questionnaire, there's a relationship schemas quiz and there's a workplace schemas quiz. And these schemas are core beliefs that show up for us at work and in relationships. 
So when a core belief gets triggered for us, and I'm, I'm glad that you use the word lens because a core belief is like a lens that we've developed. We have like a pair of sunglasses that we've developed through childhood that tell that, and when it gets triggered, we have certain automatic thoughts, feelings, sensations, memories, urges. So for example, uh, if you take the questionnaire, I uh, have 11 schemas. So uh, one of the schemas is abandonment. So if we have these sunglasses, these lenses, and the belief is that we're going to get abandoned in relationships, then we've learned certain coping mechanisms and behaviors to do to try to eliminate that pain. So maybe we seek excessive reassurance and we start um, maybe attacking our partner, being suspicious. Where have you been? Why didn't you text me? Who are you with? We do these behaviors to try to get rid of the thoughts, the feelings, the sensations connected to abandonment. But then the behavior that we do that we've learned throughout our lives to cope with this uh, ends up creating a self-fulfilling prophecy and ends up creating the very thing that we're afraid of. So the more that you get suspicious and you seek reassurance and you behave in this needy way with someone, they're more likely to pull away or abandon or reject you. Mm. Wow, that's astonishing. That's so eye-opening. And that makes so much sense. So here I am. I'm a client or somebody that I'm interested in coming to talk to you. And I have a core belief that I'm not worthy of love. Right. I've tried. I've tried time and time again. I've been on the apps. I've been ghosted. I've been led on. I've been misled. I've gone on dates. I've had relationships for months and months and months but then it falls apart I believe I'm not worthy What's wh where do you go with somebody like that well what you're describing there is a defectiveness shame schema and what we would want to do is we would want to identify the behaviors that you do when that schema gets triggered so the thing is about core beliefs is that at some point in our life they were adaptive they made sense. So somebody who has a defectiveness shame schema was most likely um, shamed as a child or made it to feel unworthy or unlovable. And they've developed certain coping mechanisms. Um, and they could, it depends because it could look differently depending on the person. Like one person who has a defectiveness shame schema may have learned uh, to avoid this pain by becoming let's say, overly emotional or, or, or needy, right? Um, uh, forcing and convincing the other person to love them. Whereas another person may be coping with this core belief through hiding their real self, not being authentic, kind of putting on like a false facade because deep down they don't believe that if you really see them, you'll love them. So then they kind of, pretend to be what you want them to be which then also ends up in then when they you know when your partner or your friends then see the real you uh you end up feeling more rejected so it, it all depends we want to first identify what are the behaviors that you're doing when this gets triggered what are the thoughts that show up what are the feelings that show up what urges uh, what do you get pulled to do in those moments? And then what do you do? What do those behaviors look like? And then the most important piece is what's the outcome of those behaviors? When you do this behavior in a relationship, 
does it feel better? Does it feel worse? Do you feel more connected, more engaged, um, you know, more intimate? Or do you feel more distanced? Do you feel more rejected? Do you feel more hurt? Mm. So we start looking at the behaviors because a cognitive behavioral therapist, right, we are under the impression that in order to change our core beliefs, we actually have to engage in new behaviors. So if I, if I do a behavior long enough that disconfirms the belief, that's how we soften up beliefs, not the other way around. And what would a behavior like that look like? What would somebody that's struggling, just generally speaking, in that uh, scenario, what would be one of those behaviors that allows them to potentially start shifting that, that feeling of I'm not worthy of love? What, what is it? Um, well, you have to identify what they usually do. So let's imagine what I often find with people who have a defectiveness schema is that they tend to really hide parts of themselves. They ha they're, they're secretive and they don't behave as authentically as they would like to be. What happens when they do that is either A, um, the person... Um, doesn't get to know them and then when they do get to know them it feels different like whoa who are you and then they feel ashamed and rejected or the person does love them and care about them but the person still doesn't believe it they don't believe it because they're not behaving authentically so both of these behaviors or ways of being leads to confirming that you are deeply broken inside and unlovable like if you were really yourself that person wouldn't accept you. Mm. So now you help them very slowly take new actions, be more authentic, uh, be more genuine, say the things that are on their mind, not keep secrets, and also learn to discern whether the person you're relating with is a trustworthy person. So you don't have to share all your secrets right at once, but you want to slowly get to know the person and be paying attention to how they're responding to you. So when you're behaving more authentically, then you open up these opportunities for people to respond differently to you and to confirm the, the to disconfirm the belief that you're not lovable. So, so for example, I'll use the guilt example. If I have um, a subjugation schema, a subjugation schema is a core belief that if I say no in relationships or if I take care of myself, I make myself a priority, other people will reject me, abandon me, punish me, uh, retaliate against me. There's a lot of fear. Now, if I never say no in a relationship, I've never disconfirmed this belief. So it keeps growing. I keep saying yes to things I don't want to do. And I keep believing more strongly that if I say no, I'll get punished. If I start then saying no and seeing that people are responding differently, like some people can be really appreciative and respectful and they don't punish me, suddenly my belief is getting a little bit, um, like it softens up, it becomes less um, powerful. Yeah, so it's the it, it takes, like you say, it's one step at a time. That takes practice upon practice upon practice. Well, a lot of the practice is the experiential exercises that I do with people when certain thoughts, feelings, sensations, and urges come up as barriers. So you'll make an effort to move into being authentic or saying no, and there's going to be your mind is going to be popping up certain thoughts that try to stop you. Because our minds, our minds are kind of like 
uh, sales representatives or commercials. So our mind is constantly trying to sell us certain products when we're triggered that keep us doing old behaviors. <coughs> wow. Now, certain interventions in cognitive behavioral therapy help us change the relationship to our mind uh, in moments where our mind is trying to pull us into doing a certain behavior, we could kind of have space from it, notice the thoughts. No, rather than looking through the lens, we start taking the lens off and looking at the lens rather than through it, making a little bit of space from um, our minds. When we have that space from our minds, and then when we have, I help people develop self-compassion, loving kindness. Um, so with your emotions, we put one hand on your heart. We notice where is this sensation in your body? What color is it? What shape does it have? We do certain mindfulness exercises that help open you up and create the space to allow all of these different experiences, uh, including emotions and sensations and memories. The more that we're able to hold all of this, the less we are um, pulled to get rid of it. Because a behavior that we do, a coping behavior, the, the purpose of it is to get rid of pain. But when we relate differently to our pain, when we start making friends with our pain, um, we, we could then behave differently. Mm. Just like we would with a crying baby. So if we, if we have a crying baby, um, we're not going to push the baby away. Like, why are you being so needy? What's your problem? You're so loud. This is so annoying. We don't, we don't criticize a baby. And therefore, you know, I see all of us as, you know, um, grown-up babies. We get triggered. We have this emotional pain. And many of us have not received uh, the level of validation and acceptance and mirroring that we need. And so I help people reparent themselves. Well, I say the yeah. I was just going to say, I assume that you're dealing with this probably at an all-time high these days because between social media and this pandemic and these dating apps, I would imagine that there is a lot. There are a lot of people out there that are struggling um, in all different aspects and all different situations, but. There's just a lot of struggle and a lot of mental health issue and and people feeling unworthy and not good enough and don't know what direction their future's taking them, don't know about their partner, don't know about their romantic um, situations. And that gets me to my next question is is in this modern dating world which we're kind of uh, toying around here, it, you know, with with this this thing of ghosting. What what is what is the difference to ghosting and you have zombieing? What is that as well? Ghosting is when you are, you know, you went on one date or several dates with somebody or it can even happen with a friend, but then they just ghost you. They don't show up. They don't respond to your messages. They just disappear. Zombieing is then when this person that has ghosted you and you haven't heard from them for a very long time suddenly reappears in your life as if nothing's happened, mm. as if they've never ghosted you. Wow. That's interesting. So some people are dealing with getting ghosted where they're texting, they're calling, they maybe even went on one or two dates, and then all of a sudden they think there's something there with this person, the person's gone. 
The person completely ignores their texts, their phone calls. This, this can go on for weeks and months. And the person it's almost like the person fell flat off the earth. The the person that got ghosted is sitting around going, What the hell is happening? I, I, I feel like crap. And the person that's right. doing the person that's doing the ghosting doesn't think twice about it, correct? Right, right. I mean, we don't know. People ghost for different reasons. Some of them don't think twice about it. Some of them are afraid of rejection. Some of them are afraid to reject. Some of them are afraid of intimacy. So we don't know. It could be different reasons. But the person who's been ghosted is left wondering, like, what did I do wrong? What did I say wrong? How did it go from A to B? And so it feels very confusing for them. And it's very difficult for, for many people, especially if they have a, a defectiveness shame schema or a failure schema or an abandonment schema. It's very difficult for them not to start ruminating about what they've done wrong and uh, really blaming themselves and trying to figure out what has happened. Yeah. So yeah. you... You really, if you're ghosted, you know, the one piece of advice I could give you is that that's more information about the person who has ghosted you than about you. Yeah, that's so true. And they always say, if and, it didn't work, if it doesn't work the first time, it, the person shows you who they are pretty quickly. Right. Like that, that person that ghosted you for two and a half months and then comes back, you, you mentioned zombieing, now they're back and they're acting like nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> you better buckle your seatbelt, right? Because it's most likely going to happen again. Yes, for sure. And and sometimes ghosting, a lot of it is about like a power or having a one up over somebody or feeling like you get to reject somebody before you get rejected. Mm. So many people who are ghosting are actually pretty afraid of rejection. They're afraid of of getting hurt so they because they've they've been hurt before and now they want to they're living in that in a whole different kind of loop and now they want to level right. they want to level the hurt on somebody else so they don't have to feel those bad feelings again right interesting right. so then you've got ghosting and zombieing, and then and then of course all these things for someone that that has been ghosted like that uh do lead to this rejection phobia and I assume it just plays on each other. It just keeps building. It's a domino effect, and, and the fire, the flames keep being fanned. And next thing you know, you you feel like you have you're so insecure, you don't know which way to turn. So, someone that's dealing with that, what's what, what's some advice you can give them? Well, I agree with you in the sense that as a collective, it really turns into a domino effect. I mean. We have not had these kinds of terms before in our society, so that says something about what's going on for us right now, that we have zombieing and benching and ghosting and pocketing. It what is that? that? What is that real quick, uh, Abby? What is benching? <clears throat> benching is when you, um, you are dating someone for a while, but you do not commit to them. You don't make any long-term plans. They're just kind of on the bench. So they're, you know, you're doing all the things that you would with a partner, but you're not actually calling them your partner. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and so it does, it, it creates a domino effect in the sense that one person ghosts another person. You know, I say we're all kind of like little turtles. We have this hard shell or a shell that may be a little soft, but starts hardening and the more we get hurt by others, you know, the shell gets harder and we poke our little heads back into our shells 
it takes us a very long time to poke our heads back out, be intimate with someone again. And then when we get hurt and we go back into our shells, we end up hurting other people. Then we ghost, we're inconsistent, we're in our shells, and it just grows and grows and feeds off of each other in, in the collective. Oh, gosh, that's exhausting and sad. <laughs> it's very sad. So uh, you talk about ghosting, zombie, benching. Uh, t touch on the love bombing because the love bombing is a, is a whole different thing that could lead to emotional problems. Yeah, I would say that love bombing is actually, out of all of these, the biggest red flag. Love bombing is when a relationship moves really quickly, so you're together for like two or three weeks, and the person is confessing their love and making future plans and wanting to move in together. They're saying things like, I've never felt this way before, or you're my favorite person. I've, you know, I've never, you know... Uh, had sex like this, I've never felt like this, I've, you know, I've never been this connected, there's something, they are putting you up on a pedestal and they're idealizing you. So when that happens, it's usually a sign of somebody who has a more avoidant attachment style or possibly uh, maybe a personality disorder, but it's certainly a sign that this person is not actually seeing you or who you really are. They're just seeing the projections of who they want you to be. And the dilemma when you're being idealized like that is that the only place that's left to go is, is down. So it goes from idealizing to devaluing. So I do encourage people, if you're seeing that a relationship is moving so quickly, um, that's, that's not a good sign. It's not a good sign for the person that's doing the love bombing because... If you you're basically saying you peel back a few layers, there's going to be some there's going to be some skeletons. Well, it's not good for the person that's being love bombed, because um, most likely the person that is love bombing you um, is not really committed to like a three dimensional relationship. Right. You know, one where you have your ups and your downs and your flaws and, and you know the things that are not so great about you they're not seeing the full you and so the more they get to know you they usually end up making more distance or, or starting to devalue you mm. yeah you mentioned personality disorder I know that's something that you specialize in uh, narcissistic personality disorder and borderline personality disorder and that is all part they're all part of that same family correct it's this and love bombing is, is one of the things that you often see within those disorders yes uh, I would say that love bombing is something that you see with both of those uh, and with other things like uh, avoidant attachment styles um, but borderline personality and, and narcissistic personality disorder are, are different. How so? Um, somebody who has borderline personality disorder has very deep feelings of shame. If I was to put it in schemas, core beliefs, the top three core beliefs for somebody who has uh, borderline personality disorder would be number one is abandonment. Uh, defectiveness, shame, um, mistrust, abuse, and then possibly some entitlement uh, and emotional deprivation. So those are the top core beliefs for somebody with 
borderline personality. And real uh, quick, somebody, let me let me just ask, yeah. let me interrupt you. For someone, for a lot of us that don't know exactly the definition, you gave us those core beliefs. But what exactly? How would you describe or define BPD in, in one sentence? A borderline personality disorder is where uh, it's when a person is emotionally dysregulated. They have a very difficult time. Uh, managing their emotions and they they act impulsively in order to get rid of emotions related to being abandoned, feeling broken and bad about themselves, feeling dependent on others uh, and feeling like their needs are not going to get met. So people with borderline personality disorder take a more pursuer approach in relationships. They are very afraid of being abandoned Mm. and they have a lot of dependency on others. Somebody with narcissistic personality disorder, um, uh, their number one schema is entitlement, defectiveness, shame, um, and mistrust abuse. So somebody who has narcissistic personality disorder, they are actually uh, not emotionally dysregulated uh, in the sense that they have a lot of behavioral control. They could seem like they're very dysregulated. They could be saying and acting in ways that um, they say they regret, but in the reality of things, they do have a lot of control over their behaviors and their main purpose. So somebody who has narcissistic personality disorder is like addicted to control. They're addicted to power. So if, if they're in a romantic relationship, they're kind of training their partner, almost like they have a remote control and they're training their partner. When I give you a compliment, you give me a compliment. Uh, when I tell you what you want to hear, you tell me what I want to hear. Now, when I start pressing guilt, you give me what I want. When I start threatening you, you do as I say. Uh, when I make you feel ashamed, you submit to me. They're creating a remote control because they need to feel um, they they need to feel like they have complete control. And when they don't have control, they have this very deep feeling of powerlessness and helplessness and kind of like this impotent helpless baby feeling that they can't escape and, and they're so, creating you're, you're saying they're creating that remote control consciously and purposely um so i wouldn't say it's completely conscious but it's not unconscious so many of our behaviors are subconscious they're not unconscious meaning we can't have access to them but they're subconscious. They're, they may not be something we're aware of. When somebody says to us, hey, um, that was really hurtful or controlling, and, and they keep kind of saying that to you, you have some sense, right? You have some sense that you're being dishonest. You have some sense that, um, that saying certain things or doing certain things will get you the response that you're wanting. Mm. And then, so, uh, yeah. Uh, people who have narcissistic personality disorder, underneath it, they feel uh, a lot of shame about themselves and who they are, and they build a kind of persona, a false self, um, so that they can uh, get rid of that shame and feel better about themselves in relationships. And now they work very hard to maintain that persona. Uh, like ha- the, the narrative becomes like the, the, the thing that they're trying to uh, hold on to the most. The narrative that they've created in their own world. Yes. 
Interesting. And then gaslighting is kind of a byproduct of that personality disorder, correct? Yeah, gaslighting is is a sign of, uh, you know, a personality disorder or, you know, there's a spectrum. So you could have some traits of certain personality disorders and not have a full-blown personality disorder. But gaslighting is a very big red flag. And gaslighting looks like it's the experience of feeling like you're going crazy. Um, you stop, you start doubting your own uh, perceptions of reality. So it's based on um, the movie Gas, Gaslight and where the husband is messing with the lighting and the wife um, starts to question her own reality as to whether she was turning them on or off. And so a person who's gaslighting you may say things like, I never said that. We didn't agree to that. I don't remember. Um, you didn't say that. And so they're kind of shaping and distorting reality in such a way where things don't make sense and you don't trust yourself and what's been said. Mm. You could see a situation. You could see it clearly. You could have even experienced it completely conscious. And then days later, whenever it comes up, you're being, you start getting doubts because this other person, your partner is is causing doubt and then next thing you know you're kind of like oh well maybe i misinterpreted something that was really so clear to you at the beginning right mm. like one example of gaslighting is the term darvo how do you so, spell that um darvo stands for deny attack reverse victim offender so for example um, let's imagine that me and you are um, partners and you say to me, I'm going to be home for dinner at eight. And now I'm noticing an airplane is flying by. Should I just let it pass? <laughs> yeah, let it pass. We, we like we like hearing the sound of planes in the background. Go ahead. <laughs> it's totally okay. fine. Um, so you, I, 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 I tell you I'm going to be home at eight or you tell me you're going to be home at eight. You tell me I'm going to be home at 8 p.m. for dinner, and then you show up at 11 o'clock at night, and I say to you, where have you been? I've been waiting for you. said you were going to be home for dinner at 8. So then you start denying. Step one is deny. I never said that. What are you talking about? You knew that I had this work meeting. I have a work meeting tomorrow. I have this project that's due. You know that. How could you not remember now you move more into attacking. First you deny, now you go into attacking. Wow, I cannot believe that you never pay attention to the things that are important to me. You're, just, you're so selfish, you're so possessive, you're so jealous, it's always about you. you. You don't even make clear plans, so now you're going into attacking. Now after attacking, you do reverse victim offender, and this part is the trickiest to catch on to because now you move yourself from the position of being the attacker to being the victim. So now you go, you maybe you get a little sad or you start crying and you go, oh, you know, all I do is work so hard to make sure that, you know, we, we pay our bills and we have this nice house and I put this dinner on the table and you don't even see or appreciate how hard I work and I can't sleep all night because of this project and you don't even know about it, right? So now the person who's been there waiting for you for three hours to get dinner is now starting to feel guilty 
feels like they're the perpetrator, the other person is the victim, and starts saying, oh, I'm sorry, I should have known, uh, it's okay, you know, they start reassuring, you work really hard, um, and wow. that's uh, one example of a form of gaslighting. That's a fantastic example and a scary one, because then the person you in this example, start thinking to yourself, oh, he must have met a different day. Am I crazy? You start, you, you doubt everything that's that exactly. you said. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's wild. So how do you protect somebody from gaslighting and covert abuse? Well, number one is being able to recognize it and understand the purpose that it serves. Um, I also teach, um, I teach my clients certain skills like nonviolent communication and effective negotiation skills. And I also teach this form of reverse DARVO, um, where I help people distance, uh, distance from the story, uh, distance from the content of what the person is saying, uh, and then learn how to use a form of detached empathy, where you could have empathy for the person, but you're not taking responsibility for their actions or their feelings or their behaviors. So it's a detached empathy, caring without taking responsibility. And then uh, I teach you how to uh, use nonviolent communication to make requests in the relationship and to track. Uh, you wanna write things down, always get them into a text or an email. If it really grows, you may wanna let the person know that you will be recording the conversation um, but there, there's many techniques to using reverse DARVO in such a way where you are assessing whether the person that you are engaging with, like their capacity for empathy. So uh, uh, most personality disorders are kind of, um, they are interpersonal problems, uh, meaning they're relational, they harm the person you're with more than yourself, and they're also... Uh, issues with empathy. So somebody with narcissistic personality disorder may be very high on cognitive empathy, which is understanding it in your head, but is very low on uh, emotional empathy, on warm empathy. There's cold empathy, understanding how a person is feeling in your head, and warm empathy, actually caring uh, and empathizing and feeling what they're feeling. Mm. So somebody with uh, NPD is actually very high on cold empathy. They're very good at reading people and knowing what they're thinking and what they're feeling. But if you, if you look at studies, it shows that physiologically they don't get impacted by it. Wow. That's, that's interesting. I've never heard it that way before. That's very, very peculiar. But it makes, I think yeah. that makes a lot of sense. So they're able to uh, understand how the other person is feeling. They just don't give a shit. Correct. Correct. <laughs> they just uh, they, it doesn't it doesn't affect them one way or another. So do you? So somebody that you have diagnosed as, as you know, I know you work with couples. So let's just say you, you diagnose somebody with one of these personality disorders. Are you willing to work with? Are people willing to admit it when they have an issue like this? And, and are you, as a psychotherapist, working with somebody that has NPD? And if you are, what are some of the things you're doing to help them with the disorder? Yeah. Um, 
I will say that it is rare for somebody with um, narcissistic personality disorder to come to individual therapy out of their own volition. Uh, so either if they're coming into therapy out of their own volition, they may have some narcissistic traits that are rare that they have a full uh, NPD. Sometimes they do when they come in for a different reason. Um, right. Uh, it, it more commonly, why they come in is either their partner is forcing them to go into individual therapy. There's like a threat. They may lose something. They're mandated into therapy or they're in couples therapy because their partner is forcing them into therapy. So often, the higher you are on the spectrum, the more likely it is that you were forced in one way or another to come to therapy. And I am always willing to work with clients who are willing so, you know, clients come into therapy and just because you come to therapy doesn't mean that you're willing to work on your own behaviors. Mm. Um, there are clients that understand that there's the work that you need to do to get to where you want to be and they are willing participants. The work is hard, but they're willing to do it. And there's some clients that are not willing. They, are, they take a more victim approach and so they feel that other people need to change, right? Uh, they're, they're not fully there in recognizing the ways that they're a common denominator in the patterns that keep showing up. Um, so it's not about whether somebody has a personality disorder or not. It's whether somebody's a willing participant in therapy yeah, or not. That's so some people who um, have some narcissistic traits or borderline traits, I mean, borderline personality disorder is much easier to treat because there's less issues with empathy than narcissism. Uh, and now if you're working with somebody with narcissistic personality disorder, the higher they are on the spectrum, the more therapy will not be helpful to them. So for example, there's also research that shows that people higher on the spectrum with malignant narcissism, which is so psychopathy or sociopaths, uh, actually end up doing worse uh, after therapy. They become more manipulative, they're more likely to recommit crimes, why is that? What's what's cause, what's causing how to that? To be better, Abby. What's causing that? Is it is it the fact that they've just gotten a plethora of of data and information from their psychologist, and now they're using it to their advantage to be even more extreme? Correct. It's because they have very high cognitive empathy, right? And because they have very high cold empathy, they could learn and perfect that skill without actually uh, having right the the compassion. So, so like the, the research, for example, on, on that, if, you, if you're getting a person with narcissistic personality disorder to watch a movie and you're hooking them up to certain devices that will measure, you know, galvanic responses and physiological arousal, heart rate, um, sweat, you'll see that they watch a movie and they could tell you this main character feels really sad because... You know, her partner is behaving just like her mother did, and now she's feeling lonely. And it's because when she was younger, her mom would be really rejecting, and that's what her partners. They could really articulate everything that's happening for them, but they're not sweating, their hands are not shaking, they're not having any physiological response to it. So, the higher somebody is on the spectrum, if they have antisocial personality disorder. The more that you teach them about how to perceive and how to understand people, 
actually they become more manipulative. Wow. Um, if if somebody has narcissistic traits, they're not right. They're not a sociopath. They're not. They don't have antisocial personality disorder. They just have traits of narcissism. Those people are more likely to get better in therapy. Meaning, the less issues with warm empathy, the more likely that person will be able to benefit from therapy. Fascinating stuff. Uh, we're getting close to finishing up, and uh, gosh, I could talk to you. We're going to have to do this again because there's so many different ways we can go. Um, so, somebody that you work with, this is a very general question uh, that has experienced some form of trauma, some form of maybe post traumatic stress disorder from any of the things we've talked about uh, today. Uh, where what what are some very low hanging fruit things that you can offer to these people, someone that's listening right now, to at least start getting themselves back on track? Well, I have two websites. One website is bayareacbtcenter.com, where we can set you up with a psychologist, and we'll make sure that they're the right fit for you. And I also have another website, which is cbtonline.com. And CBT Online has, uh, we could set you up with a therapist, with an online therapist, but we also offer worksheets uh, and videos and experiential exercises and questionnaires. Uh, there's webinars and online courses. I've just uh, recently done an online course uh, to help victims of narcissistic abuse uh, or survivors of narcissistic abuse. And so uh, CBT Online offers, you know, you could either work with an individual therapist or if you don't have the means to do that, you could still use the resources on there to do your own self-improvement work. Oh, it's fascinating. It's beautiful stuff. And uh, the CBT Online, which is the platform that you founded, um, people can ultimately get connected with a, a psychologist or a therapist or a counselor of some sort and have face-to-face -face interactions with them via Zoom? Yes. Well, not Zoom, but video conferencing. Or video, yes. some, some form of and video. I, I, yeah. some sorry, form, what was that? Some form of video. Yes. Through video, through phone. Um, and it makes a really big difference when you see a therapist... Uh, who has through a platform that is run by therapists because I highly vet every single person that I hire and we all walk the walk we don't just talk the talk so we hold each other accountable we are, we're consulting with each other we're keeping updated with uh, latest research and uh, we, we do the work ourselves and so it's not like a big corporation uh, it, it's Therapists that are, 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 are licensed and, and are experts in the field and specialize in research-based treatments and cognitive behavioral therapy. Check her out online, everybody. Dr. Abigail Abby Lev, uh, Bay Area CBT Center, and of course, CBT Online. We will make sure we link you up in the show notes. Last thing before we finish off, uh, anyone that's, that's even thinking about needing some form of therapy, regardless of what it is that's causing it, Tell, give, give them a little glimpse and a little uh, glimmer, you know, show them some positivity 
and why they can be potentially optimistic about changing their situation. Do you have a, a general story when, uh, of a recent client that you've helped and where they were in the dumps and now maybe a few months later are, their life is already in like a 180? Yeah, I mean, I, I want to be careful because I don't want to share too much information about my clients, but I wouldn't be a therapist if I didn't believe that people could change and get better and, and feel better in life. So I would say most of my clients feel better. We don't become different people, but um, we certainly learn to relate to ourselves with loving kindness and make space for like all these difficult emotions don't feel as difficult. And we move towards our values, the kind of person we want to be. And our life changes when we behave accordingly to, to our values and the way we want to be in the world. And when you personally have worked with somebody and you see that their core beliefs that were so shattered and then maybe six months or a year later, they've come such a long way and are different. That's got to be the best feeling in the world for you. You know, I have to say I feel very lucky, <laughs> very lucky to be in this field and doing this work and doing what I love. And I'm just so grateful to my clients. I don't think that they ever know how much they offer me. Uh, I learn so much through them and I, I, I gain so much hope uh, about you know life and, and behavioral change and, and humans and it's very normalizing because we're all in this together and the more you you know become intimate like this with your clients you really see how we're all you know we all have our pain and we all have the struggle of being a human being and it's unbelievably rewarding work yeah. Abby, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was a, a lot of fun.